The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy is a tragedy which touched all of us who were here in 1963 and which continues to be felt to this day. We lost a unique leader who brought a singular humanity and a lasting vision to American policy both at home and abroad. Isn't it time for the American people to at least know what its government knows and what information has been kept from them about what happened at 12.30 p.m. in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963. Too many feel that something is being concealed, and the only way to put these concerns to rest is to open the files now. The circumstances of the murder of President Kennedy and the death of the accused assassin Lee Harvey Oswald shortly after his apprehension profoundly shocked the American people. The 1964 Warren Commission conclusion that Oswald, acting alone, was responsible for the death of President Kennedy. Subsequently, revelations of bizarre plots by the Central Intelligence Agency to eliminate Fidel Castro made the rumors of a conspiracy not entirely out of the realm of possibility. I think there's a simple principle that should guide us in... Uh, considering the legislation before this committee. If there's nothing to hide, open up the file. Damn straight. And uh, the voice you heard was uh, part of the uh, Senate hearings on what ultimately would lead to the JFK Records Act of 1992 uh, being passed and the release of millions of files from the CIA and the FBI and Secret Service um, the ARRB is the Assassination Records and Review Board that was created to review all of these files. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. A lot of people have a giant misconception that the ARRB was actually a third investigation into the death of President Kennedy. Uh, it was not that per se. Uh, it was more a review you know, more of a board set up to review these records and, and to determine what what you know could be released, what should be released, uh, what is released. Which means these guys got to see a lot of records. Now they also did try to straighten out some of the evidence in the case when it comes to the medical evidence and such. They re-interviewed a lot of people, um, the doctors involved, and, and et cetera, and tried to straighten out some of the evidence and. Uh, come to some different conclusions about, you know, Oswald in Mexico, uh, the Zapruder film, <clears throat> the medical evidence, like I said, and also the guilt of Lee Harvey Oswald. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what we're going to hear today is uh, a talk given by Jeremy Gunn. He was the lead counsel for the ARRB. Um, 
it's not going to be a continuous talk. I got I broke it up into little snippets and parts, and uh, we're going to come back and discuss each one afterwards. But I thought it'd be interesting since I can't, you know, interview Jeremy Gunn. Um, and Doug Horn has talked, you know, tirelessly on the subject. Uh, you can find his videos all over the internet. Uh, he was interviewed on the Dallas Action. He's he's a he was a guest on uh, Black Op Radio and of course Jim Fetzer's show, The Real Deal. And he's been at many conferences and made presentations, which I've covered in the past. Um, the medical evidence is is a sticky situation, um, and, and we'll get into it. I promise. Um, but I think it's something that we can all agree on that, that you know all the rest of these files need to be released. Okay, this was a plea, a call for action, you know, almost 30 years ago, you know, and, and we still don't have all the files. And next year, about this time, hopefully we'll get them. But will we? <laughs> you know, I mean, the president with a swipe of their pen next year could delay it even further. Now, the, the real release date in which nobody can stop it from happening is 2029. Um, we're supposed to get the files next year. Yes, we are. Uh, unless the president can delay it. So whoever's our president next year, whether it be Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, has the power to delay the release of these records. And I would urge everyone uh, after whoever it is becomes president, to make sure your feelings are known. Uh, write your senators, write your congressmen, write the president, start a petition, a White House petition, whatever it takes. You know, we need to get these files released. Now, before we get into the show, I just want to thank everyone uh, very, very much for sharing last week's show and getting it out there. It is the most listened to show that I've ever, ever done. Uh, we're almost to 2,500 listens. And it's insane. And uh, so thank you to everyone out there for listening and sharing the show. Uh, it's a phenomenal feat. And, well, credit goes to Bart Camp and his and his, uh, his tenacity for research and his thoroughness for dissecting all the information out there and presenting it in a way that's easy to understand. And I have not heard anyone be able to refute his conclusions. I tried. I tried with a bunch of lone nutters to get them to, you know, examine the evidence, and, and nobody wants to do it. So there really is nothing you can say. When, and that's the beautiful part of, of, of real research. When you have the documents to back up what you're saying, you have the newspaper articles to back up these interviews with people, you have affidavits, you have testimony, it's kind of hard to refute it. And that's the beauty of it. And, and credit to Bart Camp and all those who came before him um, for, for laying this out there in, in an easy-to-understand manner and, and to try to uh, explain to everyone how it is that they could have possibly tried to frame Oswald for this murder. And also I wanted to thank listener Carolyn out there for sending me the coolest, coolest coffee mug ever. It is awesome. I truly appreciate it. I'm sipping from it right now as we speak. And coffee has never tasted so good. You know, it's a very cool Dallas action and the Lone Gumman podcast coffee mug. A one-off. I think Doug got one too. Well, it's a two-off then. How about that? Uh, but, but thank you, Carolyn, for that. And it's greatly appreciated. And, uh, so without further ado, let's get in to what we're talking about today. Um, well, actually, before we do, continue, continue, continue sharing the show. Make sure you subscribe however you listen, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, any of that stuff. And if you can, leave me a review on any of these sites, a thumbs up, a review on iTunes. It just helps me get exposure out there. It's greatly appreciated. Also, I got some cool-ass T-shirts Okay, now I got a t-shirt store. I don't have a link to the specific t-shirt store. What I can do is post a bunch of pictures and I can send you specific links to the t-shirt. If you would like to order, get in touch with me. You can send me an email at the podcast at gmail.com. You can get at me on Facebook, Rob Clark. There is a Lone Gumman Facebook page. 
I'm on Twitter. Okay, you can find me anywhere. If you'd like, it, if you'd like to order a T-shirt and you can't figure out how to do it, get in touch with me. I did order a T-shirt. I got my first one uh, two days ago. I just wanted to order one to see what the quality of it was, how it looked, and uh, very happy with it. Okay, because they print them on demand. They're coming from China. It's actually pretty fast shipping, though. I think within a week, it was at my house from ordering it. So that's not bad coming from China, print on demand. So if you would like to do that uh, and support the show as well, that would be great. I get a little itty-bitty little tiny little kickback from that. Um, So that would be awesome. You can also donate over at the website, tlgpodcast.com. There's a donate button at the top if you'd like to support the show. Also, if you listen via the Satchel uh, podcast player, you can subscribe to the show there. There's also a donate button where you can donate one time or you can set up a recurring donation via PayPal. That's cool, too. Much appreciated. That's the Satchel, S-A-T-C-H-E-L podcast player. You can find it in iTunes and Google Play Store. Okay, without further ado, folks, let's get in to what Jeremy Gunn has to talk about. And first of all, we're going to hear him talk about the Zapruder film. So here is Jeremy Gunn on the Zapruder film. So what does the Zapruder film show? Uh, it's very controversial what it shows and what it doesn't show. Some will even claim that the Zapruder film has been uh, doctored and we're not seeing the original uh, of that. But what does the Zapruder film show? I've spoken with people who, as I'm watching the film with them, and they'll say, see, there, that's when it happened. And I look at it and I don't see uh, what they're talking about. When Kennedy is first hit, when Governor Connolly is first hit, there are many different interpretations. When was Kennedy first hit? When was Connolly first hit? Now, for frame 313, there's no question that was the fatal shot. But in terms of other shots or what it means, was there more than one shooter or not? Very controversial. There's one thing that is not controversial in the Zapruder film. And that is after President Kennedy is hit in film, in frame 313, his body goes immediately back and to the left. Uh, So that's not controversial. After he is shot, he goes back and to the left. Now, if we're thinking about our simple way of thinking about things, and I'm very simple, so this is how I do think about uh, things, that would seem to be consistent with a shot from the front. So it comes and hits, and it will continue to go in the same direction. Now, that does not necessarily mean that it happened, and I'm saying that this is the simple uh, way of thinking of it, but Kennedy's body going back and to the left would be, at least in a a reasonably simple way, uh, that would be consistent with a shot from the front. If you were thinking that Kennedy had been shot from behind, presumably his body would go uh, towards uh, the front. So we have now, we've got the Zapruder film. We see something very clearly in this. But what was the American public told in 1963 about what the Zapruder film showed with regard to the direction of President Kennedy's body after the shooting? So... Uh, We know, because we can watch the film, that his body goes back and to the left. The first description of the film uh, that was made was from November of 1963 by a young cub reporter, you may have heard of him, named Dan Rather. So he happens to be in Dallas, and he sees the Zapruder film. And he describes the Zapruder film uh, with remarkable accuracy. I couldn't believe it when I first heard this his description, including describing the expression on Jackie Kennedy's face. I don't know how he was able to do that. If I had had the frames just in front of me and looking at them individually, I couldn't have done a better description than did Dan Rather, with one exception. And he describes President Kennedy's body after being hit as going forward. So... Dan Rather, who has seen the film, very accurate description, except for on this one point. 
Okay, so that's one. Now people can make mistakes. I make mistakes. I assume some of you make mistakes. So uh, maybe Dan rather made a mistake, got some things right and some things incorrect. Here's one I have a little bit more difficulty accounting for. Remember, Life magazine owns the original Zapruder film. And on December 6, 1963, I have a copy of the, a photocopy of the article here, uh, Life magazine wants to talk about what happened in Dealey Plaza. And Life magazine says there are already starting to be conspiracy theories about President Kennedy being shot from the front. And Life magazine, in this article, says, well, yes, we understand the Dallas doctors did think that President Kennedy was shot from the front. Uh, and they said, we at Life magazine didn't understand uh, how could Kennedy have been shot from the front, as the Dallas doctors thought, if Oswald's behind? So they said, this is a good question. So Life magazine went to look at the film itself to see what actually happened. And so from Life magazine, remember, they have the original film. The American public does not have it. Uh, it says, it has been hard to understand how the bullet could enter the front of, front of his throat if Oswald is behind. Hence the recurring guess that there was a second sniper somewhere else. That is the grassy knoll behind the picket fence. Um, uh, but the 8-millimeter film shows the president turning his body far around to the right as he waves to someone in the crowd. His throat is exposed toward the sniper's nest just before he clutches it. So we, Life magazine, we have the only original record of the assassination. President Kennedy turned around, and when he turned around, that's when he was shot. So if you read Life magazine, if you believe that reporters are telling the truth, that they have observed this record, which they have, I think that makes sense. Well, in 1969, when the film was first able to be seen by the public, this is again in the Garrison trial, it turns out President Kennedy never turned around to look behind. So how do you account for this now? Dan Rather very accurate description, except for this one thing on the question of which direction the shot comes from. Life magazine has the film. They understand the issue exactly. Was Kennedy shot from the front? And they either make an extraordinarily stupid mistake or they lie about this so the American public knows. In 1964, some of the frames of the Zapruder film are included in the Warren Commission report on the question of the direction that the president's body went after the shooting, the Warren Commission report inverted the frames so it looked as though his body went forward rather than back. So the frames were inverted. So you're a conscientious person, you're reading the news, you're trusting in the Warren Commission, you're trusting in Dan Rather, everybody trusts Dan Rather, right? I think I'm right about that. Uh, you trust Life magazine, uh, and we've got the, this rather consistent set of mistakes on exactly the same issue, on exactly the important issue in the Kennedy assassination, was there a shooter from the front? Uh, when it was point, after the film became available publicly, the, uh, the Warren Commission was asked, or former members of the Warren Commission were asked about this. The FBI ended up reporting that it was an inadvertent printer's error that the, the order of the films were, uh, were uh, switched. So that's our Zapruder film, uh, raises some uh, questions about this. Now, with the information that I'm giving you now, that doesn't necessarily prove anything, uh, but it certainly does suggest that people were certainly aware of what the issue was, was President Kennedy shot from the front, and all of the official information going to the American public is attempting to deny that, even when there is information uh, showing that that was not the case. Okay, now that was our first clip from Jeremy Gunn talking about the Zapruder film. And he brings up some very, very interesting points between the Warren Commission, Life Magazine, and Dan Rather. That all of these entities 
got somehow the events in the Zapruder film twisted to support the fact that the shots came from behind. Now, we've all seen the Zapruder film, and we've all seen the movie JFK. You know, there's a, a famous scene where Kevin Costner is in the courtroom as, J, as Jim Garrison saying, back and to the left, back and to the left, back and to the left. Okay? This film, the Zapruder film, is single-handedly, almost single-handedly responsible for sparking the second investigation into the Kennedy assassination, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, because when, in 1974, it was shown on national television for the first time, okay, by Dick Gregory, Robert Groden, Geraldo Rivera, the American public got to see with its own eyes the assassination of President Kennedy. And it's very clear very clear that it's back into the left. Now, was Dan rather lying or was he, did he make a mistake? You know, I think it's very odd that, you know, having the 2020 hindsight that we do now, that Dan rather had such an illustrious career in the national media. You know, was, was it because, hey man, look, you've seen the film, just tell the American people that he went forward uh, after the shot, you know, to support the fact that he was shot from behind, our assassin was behind him, and, you know, we'll make you a national superstar. I don't know. I'm just speculating a little bit. It makes sense to me. I mean, sure, small-town folks who report the news go on to bigger and better things eventually if they are... Uh, good at their job but you got to understand that the, the mere odds of this happening uh, of a you know Dallas wasn't a huge huge city back then and think of think for yourself how many how many major US cities were in the United States in 1963 um, and how many newscasters were in all these cities and perfectly capable of reading a teleprompter and giving us the news. Um, there's nothing about Dan Rather that made him stand out. He wasn't exceptionally good-looking. Uh, he didn't have that great of a voice. Um, you know, and he would go on, you know, to narrate in, 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 in a lot of these JFK specials, uh, you know, looking back and, and things of this nature. Now, something that Jeremy Gunn did not get into in this little talk about this Pruder film that Doug Horn has talked about in the past is, of course, the testimony of Dino Brugioni, who worked at the uh, Hawkeye Works and alleges that it's possible that this Pruder film was handed off, the original was handed off and taken to the Hawkeye Works and had some alterations done to it. Now, the specifics of these alterations are... are not really known. Uh, clearly, we are missing the turn on the Elm Street. Um, there is a, a, a little break, you know, right before that, probably around the time of Kennedy is first hit. Um, and, of course, now, <clears throat> I have a unique perspective for you. Um, my friend Doug who is the host of the Dallas Action and I, were at a conference two years ago in the company of Doug Horn and several other prominent researchers, and we're invited to take a sneak peek at a uh, documentary that's being worked on, and they were filming interviews for this documentary at the conference. Um, now, the sneak peek was, of course this documentary from these filmmakers in California and got actually a chance, you know, to see a little bit of what they were working on and what they're working on includes a 4k digital scan of this Pruder film. Now what this allows is for much greater detail to be seen in the film itself. 
maps allows it to be enlarged without losing you know detail and what I clearly saw there disturbed me and hopefully this documentary sees the light of day at some point um, like I said this was two years ago and they, they were still working on it we haven't seen it since then it's not out yet I, I still don't know still don't know the status of, of this uh, documentary um, you know, if, if it's as damning as I think it's going to be, um, it probably won't see the light of day, but I can tell you from seeing it with my own two eyes that it is quite clear to me and my eyes that there were some alterations done to the Zapruder film, at least superficially. Now, I don't know the specifics of missing frames and this, that, and the other, but when it comes to the head wound on, on Kennedy, you can clearly see, and it's of course it's been alleged in the past that the back of his head was was uh, colored in. Um, but in this 4K digital scan of the Zapruder film, you can clearly see where that has taken place. There is, it's clear. I mean, there's no denying it. It's clear as day actually and when you're looking at the orangey pink blob that kind of came out of his head as he shot um, in frame 313 you can clearly see that that is an artifact as well um, the way it moves the way it's, it's shaped and 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 the hard, I mean, you can just tell that it's a, it's an added artifact. Now, I don't know exactly what's under this artifact, but to my eyes, it, it looks fake. The blob and, of course, the back of the head colored in. Um, and they said that there was more than just that, but that's all that, that, that we got to see that night. And, you know, when this documentary comes out, it's going to be pretty groundbreaking or earth shattering if it comes out and I hope it does um, but anyway if you'd like to read more about Doug Horn and Dino Brugioni I suggest you go get Doug Horn's four volume set inside the ARRB uh, because it, it's got invaluable perspective and uh, a lot of the inner workings of the ARRB uh evidence and 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 uh, interviews and it really really goes more in depth to what i can do here <clears throat> so definitely check that out now as far as the zapruder film being altered you know there's you know who's to say but there is no denying that that there was a little bit of uh untruth and obfuscation happening back in the 60s with life magazine Dan Rather, and of course the Warren Commission printing these things out of order to make it look a certain way. Uh, you know, it's just unconscionable. You know, you think that they would put forth every effort to get this right, and it just wouldn't be a printing error. Um, and of course, Dan Rather, it can't just be a speaking error because um, he got a lot of other details in the film right. So that's Jeremy Gunn on the Zapruder film, or Zapruder film as he called it. Um, next, we're going to see what Jeremy Gunn has to say about Oswald in Mexico City. Mr. Gunn, take it away. One, one of the fascinating parts of the story is what happened in Mexico City. So seven weeks before the assassination, uh, I'll put in quotation marks, Oswald goes to uh, Mexico City. The, uh, the CIA has staked out both the Cuban and the Soviet embassies, as well as maybe some other embassies there that will just maybe other embassies, but at least those two, because those have been declassified uh, now. And the CIA has both tapped the telephones, not all of the telephones there, and there's sometimes misleading statements about that, but they had tapped some of the telephones to the Cuban and Soviet embassy, not all of them, and they also had photo surveillance. So in theory... Anyone going in or out of the embassy would be, someone going into the embassy would be photographed probably the back of the head. Coming out of the embassy, they would get the photograph from the front of the head. 
from, from, the, from the face. So Oswald, I think, went in or out of the Cuban and Soviet embassies seven times, I think. Don't quote me on that. I think about seven times. In, so in theory, the CIA would have 14 photographs of Oswald, uh, seven of his back and seven of his front. Or if it's five, then ten. You get the, get the idea. Uh, after the assassination, uh, CIA was aware that there was somebody claiming to be Oswald going to the Soviet and Cuban embassies, and I'll say something else about that. And so CIA was asked to send photograph of Oswald after the assassination. I talked with the woman who sent the photograph. Her name is Anne Goodpasture. She also has uh, passed away uh, since this uh, time, and she said she was very opposed to sending this photograph because she said she didn't know whether it was Oswald or not in the photograph. If you look at the photograph, uh, it looks to me like what I would say a Ukrainian sailor, uh, nothing that looks anything like Oswald. So there should have been, in theory, 14. One of the things I wanted to find out was uh, what was going on with the photo surveillance. So I got all of the original records from photo surveillance to see what is going on. CIA had said, well, it wasn't working during the part of the time that Oswald was there. So I looked at their monthly report, and in, uh, in October, as I'm recalling, something like October 30th, this is before the assassination, they filed their monthly report with headquarters. They didn't say anything about photo surveillance not working. It was only after the assassination that they said it wasn't working, a story that I found not to be entirely uh, credible. There's also the very curious story of uh, the, the taping of Oswald. So uh, there's a um, uh, CIA, again, has uh, uh, conducting wiretaps. And what CIA would do, and this is Anne Goodpaster, again, became the source of this, CIA would have the large reel-to-reel tapes uh, where they would record all conversations going in and out of the Soviet and Cuban embassies on those lines that they had uh, tapped. Then they would go back and listen to them, and anything – well, I don't want to get ahead of myself there. So they, they're conducting this. After the assassination, the CIA is asked, please let us hear these tape recordings of Oswald calling the uh, Soviet embassy. And the CIA said those tapes had been routinely erased. So we don't have them. We don't have them. Uh, so we don't know if it's Oswald's voice or this person. So we don't have the tapes anymore. Well, on November 23, 1963, the day after the assassination, uh, we do have this recording of uh, President Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover, whom Johnson called Edgar. Uh, so there is this recording, and Johnson says, what is, this, what is this business about Oswald in Mexico City? And Hoover says, that's something we don't understand. We have up here the tape, and it's not Oswald's voice. So uh, this tape existed after the assassination, not routinely erased. So I asked Anne Goodpasture about this, what about this tape? And she said, oh, yes, the reel-to-reel tapes were erased, but when we found something of operational interest, uh, then we'd make one of those small tapes. And she said she had that tape in her hand. She gave it to the CIA chief of station, Wynn Scott, and he then took it. She didn't know what happened with it after that point. So now think about this. Uh, heavy surveillance of the Soviet and Cuban embassy. A guy goes down there claiming to be Oswald, goes in and out several times. They don't have any photographs of it. They have a tape recording of this person who claims to be Oswald, but then they lose the tape recording, and J. Edgar Hoover says it's not Oswald's voice. All of this suggesting to, I think, any reasonable uh, interpretation, at least the possibility, someone is imitating... Oswald in Mexico City, and CIA may not know that, that somebody is impersonating Oswald. They may not know that, but they have this information. After the assassination, if it turns out you now have this uh, lone nut, this crazy gunman, this Marxist, who's going in and out of the Soviet and Cuban embassies under CIA surveillance, uh, and he's including meeting with Kostikov, uh, the head of assassinations, as I mentioned, CIA looks pretty inept that they didn't do something about this, so an attempt to suppress this, not because they were involved in the assassination, but because Oswald went through their security net, which is designed to catch things like this, and they utterly failed to do that. The story is even more involved than that, but you have both photo surveillance and electronic surveillance. Oswald should have been on it. There's no evidence that, in fact, 
the Lee Harvey Oswald accused of assassinating the president was the person who was picked up by CIA. Again, another excellent point brought up by Jeremy Gunn, but this is just scratching the surface of the whole Oswald and Mexico City thing. Now, part, some of the declassified files we got uh, from the JFK Records Act was, of course, the Lopez Report, which detailed the FBI's, <clears throat> um, you know, trying to figure out whether or not Oswald was in Mexico City. And for those of you who have not read that report, it's... It's very lengthy, but it is well worth the read. Uh, I'll link that up over at tlgpodcast.com for you to check it out. And what Mr. Gunn was, was talking about here is, well, let me put it to you this way. Okay, when you have, at the height of the Cold War and the Communist scare, when you have a U.S. Marine defecting to, to the USSR, and staying there for a period of two and a half years, then coming back with a Russian wife, okay? You're going to keep an eye on him. Now, we know now that Oswald was, in fact, debriefed by the CIA upon returning, and, and likely the FBI upon returning. And we also know that there was also a active program, uh, you know, watching his mail, opening his mail, um, so you're trying to tell me that you, you had this former Marine, a defector, coming back with a Russian wife that you're watching, uh, you know, a guy with using P.O. boxes, post office boxes. Um, you don't know that this guy's buying guns. You don't know this guy's traveling to uh, Mexico City to visit, you know, Russian and Cuban embassies. You don't know anything. And... and you know, the, the CIA surveillance just happens to take a crap on the day that Oswald's there, but supposedly they have a tape of it, but nobody hears this tape except Hoover, and he says it's not Oswald. We have pictures that's clearly not Oswald. Um, now, I, I, I did read a book called Passport to Assassination by Oleg Nechaprenko. He worked at the Soviet embassy in Mexico City. I did a show about this last year. If you want to go back and check it out, um, we're get in depth about the book but what he says is that you know comparing the pictures of Oswald of course after the assassination uh, that this was in fact the person that was in his embassy and talking to him but how reliable is that you know we have plenty of plenty of Oswald sightings who swore up and down that this was a guy when clearly he was not there you know, he couldn't be in two places at once. This is a, a major sticking point to a lot of the eyewitnesses of and surrounding, you know, this whole assassination business and, and sightings of Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, was he being impersonated? You know, we have some evidence of that, uh, you know, from Hoover uh, stating that someone was using Lee Harvey Oswald's social security number in 1960 when he was in Russia. We have uh, evidence of him trying to buy, uh, I believe it was trucks or something in New Orleans. He's on he's on the paperwork for that. Um, when he was in Russia, couldn't have been him. Um, you know, what is the deal here? And, and when you look and you see how far away Mexico City was from Dallas, Texas, and I'm talking thousand-some miles, you know, that he supposedly took this bus ride there and back. And when you really break down the technical eyewitnesses of the thing um, and the treatment of Sylvia Duran and, and such, uh, you know, nothing really makes sense. And, and, and to me, I don't believe that Oswald ever went to Mexico City. That's my personal opinion. And that if somebody did go to Mexico City, that, that they were impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald. But he might have looked, uh, you know, like him. Uh, and the reason for the CIA not giving up the true photographs of this individual who was portraying Lee Harvey Oswald down there probably had operational significance, if you know what I'm saying. Because, like I said, not... Not everybody in the CIA knows what the other hand is doing. 
You know, they could have said, hey, you know, we got these pictures. This guy's calling himself Lee Harvey Oswald. And somebody else from another section of CIA says, no, that's not, that's our operation. Just don't worry about it. Lose the photos. No problem. <laughs> you know, well, you can send the audio because it's not him. It really doesn't matter. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to say we erased it. But that's my personal observation of things, uh, you know, because he was on the FBI's radar. You know, he was arrested in New Orleans in, in August of 1963. He was talked to by the FBI. Hosty was sniffing around him in Dallas. You know, this guy, What they he was on their radar. Let me put it that way. And there's no way he could have slipped out, sight unseen, down to Mexico City, and, and got away with everything he was supposed to get away with down there and get back to the United States with no fanfare. Okay? <sighs> All right, well, let's get into some of the medical evidence. And this is the longest clip of Jeremy Gunn that I'm going to play. It's about 10 minutes long. And then I'll be back, and uh, we'll talk about some of the uh, medical evidence concerning JFK's autopsy. Here's Jeremy Gunn again. So what about the autopsy? Now, that's really the for uh, an assassination investigation or any murder investigation. That's probably the single most important uh, set of evidence that you have. Not always, but uh, typically that's the case. Now, the doctors who uh, performed the autopsy, uh, there were three doctors responsible for the autopsy. I took their depositions under oath in the National Archives. Uh, this was the first time that they had had a systematic deposition taken. So there's a legal inquiry. There's a court stenographer uh, there. The original autopsy material is in front of them. This is the first time they have ever seen the original autopsy material in terms of uh, the, the face sheet, the, the record, uh, since the time of the assassination. It was the first time they had ever seen the autopsy photos. So they were present when the photos were taken, but they had not been shown uh, the photos uh, before. The doctors who performed uh, the autopsy believed and claimed that President Kennedy had been shot from behind, and the version that the, uh, the uh, doctors in, uh, in Bethesda Hospital gave was exactly the same as the Warren Commission supported the, uh, the Warren Commission. There are, some, there are a few little problems here that we need to ask some uh, questions about, uh, and there are, there, are more than, there are more than a few, but I'll just uh, mention two of them. When I took the, the deposition of Dr. Humes under oath, uh, I went through uh, the record uh, fairly systematically uh, with him, and uh, we finally got to the question of the original autopsy. So there's a version of the autopsy that is in the National Archives, handwritten. He had very good handwriting. I envied his uh, handwriting. So he has this original version of the autopsy. I asked him a series of questions because I had some suspicions, and he admitted under oath for the first time that the version that is in the National Archives, the original version, was not the original version. He had written another one beforehand, and he had burned the original version. He never told the Warren Commission. He had never told the American public that. He admitted that under oath. I said, why did you burn it? Uh, I did not think for a minute I would get a correct answer, but he said the president's blood was on it, and I thought it was gruesome. And I asked him, I already asked him, but I reminded him that he said that he wrote the autopsy while he was at home sitting in front of his fireplace. So I said, was there president's blood in your home, uh, knowing that it couldn't possibly be? And then he acknowledged that that could not have been the reason, but he could not remember why he had uh, burned the original version and said nothing to uh, anybody uh, about that. The autopsy photos that are in the National Archives do not show a large, massive exit wound in the occipital parietal area. See, I can't say it without touching uh, the back of my head. I've tried, and just I can't do it. Uh, uh, there's no massive wound in the occipital parietal area that's visible on the photos. So one of the questions is, were these photos doctored? Are the photos accurate? Are the doctors in Parkland Hospital correct or incorrect? So all of these questions uh, came up. We were able, the, the, the agency that I worked for, we were able to find the person who developed the original autopsy photo. So her names were on the records, and we found her, her name was Sandra Spencer. 
Uh, so we located her and we brought her to Washington. Uh, so what she did was she developed the films. So these were slides. Uh, there were black and white slides and color slides. These are large formats, so large uh, prints. So these are not your 35 millimeter uh, prints, but these are large prints. So she develops the color transparencies, black and white transparencies, and then she printed from the transparencies onto Kodak paper. I asked her if she had any uh, prints that she had made at the same time that she developed the autopsy photos and printed the autopsy photos, and she said yes, uh, because she, was, she did the, um, the, um, the developing work for the White House, and she had pictures of President Kennedy that had been taken a couple of days earlier that she kept as a souvenir. So I said, bring those with you, because in theory, the paper that is in the National Archives that the photographs are printed on should be exactly the same as what she had. So she came to the National Archives. She looked at the autopsy photos, the color transparencies, the black and white transparencies, and she said, these are not the photographs that I developed myself. And I said, well, could you describe what is different about these? And she said, yes. Uh, she said that the photographs that she developed had a large exit, massive exit wound in the back of the head. So what she said she developed was exactly the same as what the doctors in Parkland Hospital had seen, consistent once again with a shot from the front, uh, not from behind. We then compared the paper of the photographs that she had developed, and the paper in the National Archives is not the paper, uh, the photo, uh, the uh, the polar or the uh, Kodak. Sorry about that mistake. Not the Kodak paper that she had, and she said these are not these are not the ones that I did. She said I don't know where they came from, uh, but these are not mine. So I asked her uh, if she had had any experience with autopsies before. I thought presumably she had not, and she may not know what she's been seeing. We wanted to do comprehensive, not jump to uh, conclusions. And so I was expecting her to say no. She'd done uh, uh, photographs of President Kennedy, but not autopsy. And she said, oh, yes, before I went to work at the uh, Naval Lab in Anacostia, I was an autopsy photographer myself. And so she was very familiar um, with that. So we have a few questions there. Now, none of this says that we uh, know what the answers to those questions are, but we do have some uh, questions with this. You mentioned that uh, the person who took the photographs that you interviewed and the photographs that who developed the, who photographs. developed the photographs. Did you ever find, or were you ever able to find, which the photographs that she developed? No. No, we we pursued this. Uh, here's one of the one of the questions. So there, there's no massive headwind. We we got the original photographs. Those that are in the archives. Uh, through the, the good graces of Kodak, we went to Rochester, New York. That was one time I felt very special. I was whisked through all the security and airports and taken on separate vans. I thought I was a VIP. Uh, we went on the plane first, and we have FBI agents there who are guarding the uh, autopsy photos. We digitized them. We did not. Kodak did. Uh, blew them up so we could look at these images, and by my non-expert eye, the photographs have not been doctored, retouched, uh, but the question ends up being uh, whether, when those photographs were taken. Uh, and two possibilities. One is before the autopsy, which is what all of the official records say, is the, the photographs were taken before the autopsy began or after the autopsy, after the body had been reconstructed. So Gawler's mortuary reconstructed the body. Observers, and this is in um, William Manchester, this is the first time I read about it, William Manchester's death of a president that said that the body was so well done you could not tell that he had been shot. So very good reconstruction at the mortuary. Were the photos taken afterwards, and so that after this wound is uh, covered up? Uh, knowing that this is a possibility, when I interviewed the doctors, I asked them, was the body cleaned in any way before the photographs were taken? And they all said no. They described it as being very messy, blood, brain tissue, blood matted. When you look at the photographs of the back of the head, it's all clean and neatly combed. So before or afterwards... Uh, and you know, I can't prove any of this, but uh, all of I mean, for me, the frustrating thing is the Warren Commission could have done this, 
and the Warren Commission did not do it. 30 years later, you can wonder about this, but you can't uh, really get that. But conceivably, Sandra uh, Spencer developed photographs from the, fir- from, the autops- or from the photographs taken before the autopsy and not those that are taken later, and she sees the ones taken later in the National Archives. Now, uh, that, the evidence seems to point in that direction, but that's also uh, a fair amount of speculation. I can't say I'm really confident that happened, but I suspect that happened, uh, and it would be nice to know, but I'm not expecting uh, to find out. If sometime we end up finding uh, additional autopsy photographs that show that, uh, then we will maybe know the ones that Sandra Spencer developed. She has, she has since um, died. The, the, the autopsy that was performed in a Bethesda Naval Hospital was a disgrace. Uh, it, it, it was a disgrace. Uh, when, I, when I took the deposition, I asked uh, Dr. Humes what the standard was that he used for the autopsy. And he said, oh, there was some manual that had been created by the Navy that set up the standards. And I said, is that the one that you followed? And he said, yes. And I then pulled out a copy of it, which I had, and handed it. And I said, is this the one that you followed? And uh, he didn't say anything. He said, yeah, he answered yes to that. But I could tell, I mean, from my perspective, uh, he thought this is going to be a very bad day. Uh, and we then went through this, and he just simply didn't follow the procedures. Well, there you have it. I don't know how much clearer that you can make it. The, the photographs in the National Archives are not the same photographs that the original developer of the photographs, the original autopsy photographs from Bethesda, said that she did. They're not on the same paper. They don't show the same things. I don't know how much clearer it is to make this point. That alone should be enough to tell you that something is fishy here. You know, everybody says, oh, no, the the Dallas doctors must have been mistaken. You know, about this big, massive blowout in the back of his head. You know, but look, folks, nurses, doctors at Dallas, nurses, Clint Hill himself said he saw this giant hole in the back of of JFK's head. Okay? Yet, it is nowhere in the photographical record of the autopsy done at Bethesda. Nowhere. And you heard it right here. The woman that developed the original autopsy photographs from Bethesda says that those are not the same ones that she took, the ones that are in the archives now. That says a lot. They're not on the same paper. They're not the same photos. So where do these photos come from that are in the National Archives of his Bethesda autopsy? That's a huge question. What about Hume's original lying about his original autopsy, saying that he had blood on it? but that he actually wrote it when he was at home sitting in front of the fire. He wouldn't have still had blood all over himself that would transfer it to paper. So why did he lie? You know, these are huge, huge questions and roadblocks to the truth. And ones that just can't really be refuted and denied by lone nut theorists. I'm sorry. But when you lie about such things and you insert different evidence into the official record there has to be a reason when you combine that with what happened in Mexico City when you combine that with what we talked about earlier in the Zapruder film it sounds a hell of a lot like to me that they are trying to obfuscate the truth about what happened that they're trying to make it look like this guy Lee Harvey Oswald is a lone nut assassin with communist ties. Which brings us to the point of Oswald's guilt, beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, this is about five minutes long, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. So, Mr. Gunn, take us away, sir.
Some people will say that it, the Warren Commission is involved in this conspiracy. Some people will say the Warren Commission simply was incompetent. One of the conclusions that I reach, and this is where I will end, is although I do not myself believe that the Warren Commission was consciously involved in an attempt to suppress the truth about the assassination, again, personal point of view, I believe that they, they did a profound disservice to the American people, that they did not conduct a serious, comprehensive, conscientious investigation of the assassination, which they could have done in 1964 and I couldn't do in 1994. Uh, so they did not do it. They, cre- they created what I think was a prosecutor's brief against Oswald. Any evidence they could find that uh, was incriminatory against Oswald, they would include things that were exculpatory, they left out of the report. So they did a profound uh, disservice uh, and led to, I think, uh, giving life to many of the uh, conspiracy uh, theories. I don't know who killed President Kennedy. Uh, if, uh, I think there is no, if we differentiate between circumstantial evidence, sort of some backgrounds, who's in which place at which time, we differentiate between circumstantial evidence and direct evidence, saying, I saw someone pick up the rifle and shoot. Uh, if we differentiate between those, there's no direct evidence on anybody for the Kennedy assassination. It's a circumstantial uh, case And whether you believe it that it was Castro or anti-Castro or mafia or CIA, you have to make your case based on circumstantial evidence. And that's not shocking or new or uh, immoral. That's what legal cases often are. You, when you don't have direct evidence, you have to put the circumstances together and try and find the most plausible uh, explanation. Uh, if we actually ask the question, was Oswald guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, assuming that we apply legal standards at the time, suppose that Oswald had lived, the judge had uh, applied uh, evidentiary rules appropriately, that he had instructed the jury, he, maybe the judge was a she, that's possible. No, Dallas, no. When he... Uh, when he uh, uh, if he made those decisions, instructed the jury correctly... Uh, and the jury made a correct decision, not based on emotion, but the evidence, I am convinced that Oswald would have been found not guilty by, beyond a reasonable doubt. To me, there's just no question he is not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That doesn't mean he didn't do it, uh, but it means that the evidence was not there. Key pieces of evidence were, uh, for in legal terms, their chain of custody had been lost. So somebody says, somebody gave it to me, and that person says, I didn't give it to him. And their just chain of custody is... Uh, serious problem throughout the entire Kennedy assassination, whether it's the Manlicher Carcano, whether it's the uh, ballistics and others. So the evidence is not there. Uh, and so you can have a circumstantial case, and there is some uh, inculpatory evidence, some pretty good evidence that Oswald knew something was going on. Immediately after the assassination, he learns the president's killed. He doesn't sit around Dealey Plaza looking and trying to find people. He tries to get out there. He immediately goes home, and he gets a gun. Uh, now, that's not... If I heard of somebody being assassinated, that would not be my uh, reaction. So I assume, uh, and there are many other things, that he knew about something that was going on. Now, maybe he knew that he had just killed the president, or maybe he thought somebody asked him to be in the lunchroom during the time of the assassination, and he realized he was going to be framed for it, so he's going to defend, protect his life. But he knew something was going on. There, there is something there. He's not completely innocent uh, that is completely innocent of knowing something that's going on. I can't see any plausible explanation for that. So even with the circumstantial case, it's not sufficient to convince Oswald. But if you say, against whom else is there a circumstantial case, there isn't anybody for whom you have even a plausible circumstantial case. So you can say, well, CIA, or maybe there's some marksman. You don't have them there in Dallas with people seeing it. So you go from a very... And, uh, a significant amount of evidence in a circumstantial case against Oswald, but not enough to convict him, but nothing against any other uh, person. So, I don't know, 40% Oswald did it, 60% someone else, and who knows who that was, and I can't even name one person with 1% plausibility. Exactly. 
Now, <clears throat> I agree with a lot of what Jeremy Gunn said there. Um, and when you're looking at this case from a, you know, if it had ever gone to court, from a basically a evidentiary point of view, a lot of the evidence against Oswald would have been, if, you know, we're assuming everything would have went according to the letter of the law, uh, thrown out due to chain of evidence or chain of custody of the of the so-called evidence of the gun, the bullets. I mean, there's there's many many things. You know, even Tom Alia, who was up there taking a video on the sixth floor afterward, you know, said people were picking up bullets, touched, moving the lunch sack. Uh, he said that the, the chicken was, was out of the lunch sack, that the chicken was dried out as if it had been there for days. Um, you know, a lot of this so-called evidence, you know, the gun bag, this and that, it, you know, all this stuff was shipped to, 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 to Washington, D.C., you know, the night, the night of the assassination to the FBI and then back again. And, you know, the, it's just it was horribly, horribly mishandled. You know, whatever, whatever happened, happened. Um, but, you know, like he said, there's no direct evidence of, of, of another shooter. There's, but there, you know, there has been eyewitnesses over the years who have claimed to have been the shooter, who have, uh, claimed to see a shooter. Uh, you know, there's circumstantial evidence that there was another shooter based upon, you know, the visual evidence and, uh, eyewitness testimony and this, that, and the other, which is why we're where we're at here you know, some 50 some years later, still talking about the case. And what he said is true that, you know, the Warren Commission, if had they done what, what, what they could have done back in 1964 and what he could not do in 1994 is actually investigate the case properly. Now, the problem with that is, of course, that the Warren Commission was handcuffed by their investigative body, which was the FBI. Now, the FBI had a lot to lose. Um, had it been known that they had Oswald on their radar and something like this happened, that's worst, worst case scenario. Um, another scenario is, uh, you know, that it was somebody else altogether totally and who framed Oswald for this, who figured he'd make the perfect patsy with his past and what he was into and, and this, that, and the other. <clears throat> you know, there's been many, many viable suspects, but of course, all we have is circumstantial evidence, which would not hold up in a court of law either. So, and I do agree that, that Oswald likely knew something about what was going on, you know, hence his quick exit from the school book depository. Now, you know, we get into a whole, whole host of other, of other problems. Um, when we get to that, uh, you know, with, with the cab ride and the bus ride and, and the going back and getting a gun, supposedly, and the killing of Officer Tippett and what happened at the theater. Uh, that's a whole another discussion for another day. Uh, we've talked about some of the events uh, on the show in the past. You know, I agree. You know, and I encourage everybody, if, if this case interests you, you know, you don't have to listen to these shows in order. You know, each show has a different topic. You can bounce around. You can go back and, and check out different shows. Um so do that, you know, if, if you want to learn more about, you know, the bus ride or you want to learn more about the lunchroom account or you want to learn more about the Tippett murder or you want to learn more about uh, Beckley, his Beckley Street address or you want to know about Oswald impersonators. There's, there's all kinds of stuff in the archives for you to go check out and I encourage you to do so. Um, but I just wanted to touch on some of this stuff today with the ARRB and who better than the lead counsel for the ARRB than Jeremy Gunn um, and some of his conclusions he drew from seeing much of this evidence and, and these classified CIA, CIA documents and being able to depose under oath a lot of these medical witnesses. Um, you know, it's, it's clear to me that something was something fishy was going on here. Um, and that leads me to one conclusion that they had something to hide. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll likely spend the rest of our days figuring out exactly what that was. But, uh, that's it for today, people. The sun bitches in the can and beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears. This is your boy. Peace.
Greetings, listeners. I'm Sam Davis, the host of Inward Empire, a podcast that explores the role of ideas, ideology, and myth in American history. Each episode plunges you eye-deep into a world that's both intensely familiar and profoundly different from the one we live in now. From the forests of colonial New England, to the scarred mental battlefields of Civil War veterans, to the contested streets of Gilded Age cities, I aim to bring the American past alive for my listeners, and at the same time, illuminate the American present. For more information about the show, visit darkmyths.org or my own website at inwardempirepodcast.wordpress.com. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.